we have finally gotten there. I've been telling you for months and months. We're going to go into that book that they always tell you not to do. So I'm obviously, they, they say there's, there's two books that you probably should avoid preaching on. One is the Song of Solomon, the other one's Revelation. And since I already blew the advice one time, um, we're just going to go for it. The, uh, we're in the book of Revelation. If you don't know where that is, go all the way to the end of your Bible. If there's maps or charts or uh, anything like that, just go back a little bit to your left so you'll find uh, Revelation. And we are going to start with Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This morning I'm going to read the first three verses uh, of this book, and then we're going to dive in. Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3. Listen carefully, because even though we sort of hold this book out as odd and different and strange and, you know, a little wary of it, it is still the Word of God, and it is uh, our inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word for us. And so listen to this carefully. Revelation 1 verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now dare to make our way through Revelation, will you please help us? We know that there's still a lot that we need to learn from your word so that it can have full impact in our lives. We know we're susceptible to our idols, to our own selfishness and sin, and to our fears. So, Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Help us to understand why you have spoken to us in this strange and unique way. We want to be among those who are blessed for having spent time in this wonderful book. Help us to meet you in this book. Help us to see your Son in its words. Do this for each of us this morning, in Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen. Amen. What is reality? And you might think that's a pretty simple question. Reality is what I see. Chairs, podium, this stage, the lights, uh, the projector. You know, my wife, my family, my friends, my church. And if we leave here to go home, you know, we'll see cars and traffic lights and roads. And we get home, we'll see houses and doors and carpets and beds, the refrigerator, the stove, my iPod, the TV, the football game, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, planets. That's reality, what I see. The astronomer Carl Sagan summed up that philosophy in words he used at the beginning of his celebrated uh, PBS TV program, Cosmos. He said, the cosmos 
is all there is or was or ever will be. Is the cosmos reality? The Bible says otherwise. Well, the world around us is real enough. But listen carefully to some of what the Bible says about this. In Colossians 3, verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, But as it is, they deserve a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Second Corinthians fourteen or verse four chapter four, verse eighteen. Second Corinthians four eighteen. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And our understanding of reality affects our lives profoundly. Let me point out a, a few ways it helps us to see the rest of life differently. I believe that if we really understand who Jesus is and what he's doing in the world, then we'll see every part of life differently. Our possessions aren't things that we've earned or deserve, nor are they the source of meaning uh, in life, even though we often act as if they can provide that for us. But rather, the spiritual reality is that all possessions are gifts from God to be used for His glory. How about when we're facing various trials and temptations? The spiritual reality is that if Jesus is in control, if He's exercising His pastoral care over us, then we have no grounds for getting angry about our lot in life. We have no reason to complain about how unfair life might be. Instead, we'll see even those trials as controlled by God. He will use them in our lives for his good purpose, transforming us into the likeness of his son, comforting others through us, and bringing glory to his name. And the book of Revelation was written to help us to remember these truths. These truths are available only through God's revelation of truth in his word, in his living word, Jesus, and in his written word, the Bible. The Bible is our authority, the source God gives us to see and to understand spiritual realities that we would otherwise never see. Now put all this together and what do we have? What we have in Revelation is the disclosure of an alternate reality and an exhortation to John's Christian friends to live their lives in keeping with that reality. One scholar suggests that what Revelation is designed to do is to purge our imagination and give us an alternate vision of the world in which we live. And to John's con uh, contemporaries and to us, the world you see appears to be one thing. In fact, it's something quite different from what it appears to be, but only faith can see that. Only God can show us what's really happening in the world and what life and history mean. The world looks very different from heaven. Things take on a very different meaning when seen from a heavenly, a divine, a transcendent, an eternal uh, perspective. 
And in imperceptible ways, we all succumb to the temptation to accept what we can see, what we can touch, what we hear as ultimate reality, even when we know it's not. The visible trumps the invisible every day in our lives. The tangible trumps the intangible. The temporal trumps the eternal. And how many of us would admit that far, far too often, much of the time, we live as if the Almighty God were not working out His purposes of grace and judgment in the world with a view of bringing its entire history suddenly to a dramatic, catastrophic close. I mean, we text, we shop, we eat and drink, we make small talk, uh, while multitudes drop dead around us, slip off to hell, while the great prospect of heaven remains so dim that we can go for days and weeks without even thinking a serious thought about it. And John is telling us in this book, you cannot live the Christian life this way. You cannot, you must not allow the visual to overwhelm the invisible. There's but one reality, one truth, and that is the reality of the truth as it is in heaven. And John is bringing that reality down to us as he was given to see it and in a form that's dramatic enough to arrest our attention and to penetrate our conscience. Today we begin this new series on the book of Revelation, a book of the Bible that I've never preached on uh, before, apart from a, a few sermons on the letters to the seven churches of Asia many, many years ago. And I used to wonder if I would ever preach through this book, as I was pretty much intimidated by its problems and challenges. The great reformers such as Calvin and Luther uh, both declined to publish commentaries on this book. And so I wonder if this is a case of fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And I'm guessing by the time I finish this book, you'll have a pretty good idea of whether or not that applies. Normally when I begin to preach through a book of the Bible, I like to jump right in and get started, get a little bit of a background and head right to the text. That's really not possible with a book like Revelation. There is so much confusion about the way in which this book is to be interpreted that in order to avoid adding to the confusion, we're going to spend a lot of time on background material uh, before we tackle the first three verses of the book next Sunday. Today we're only going to deal with the first verse. And then that background will come back again and again as we get farther into the books. So we have to understand that by understanding that Revelation teaches us through the use of symbols and images. And so it's somewhat of a picture book. So we're, we're all going back to kindergarten. You know, and it's funny because children read this book and they get it. They do. You know, they're very good at using their imagination. And they read it, and it seems to make sense. And adults get to it, and, you know, we've got to figure it out and take it apart and twist it around, and, you know, it becomes incomprehensible to everybody by the time we're done with it. Revelation is the last book to be written that's included in the canon of the New Testament. 
In many ways, I think it's the most practical book of the entire New Testament because it's specifically written to Christians who live in the age after the apostles. You think about it, it was a lot easier if you lived back in uh, 60 AD, you weren't sure how to do something, ask Paul, he'd tell you, you know, or ask Peter or John, they'd tell you. You know, this is the last book written. It's written with the intent that those guys aren't going to be around to tell you. And that means that the symbols and images and visions that we find here are meant for us. And therefore, we must make every effort to understand them correctly and apply them to our present context. No book of the Bible has captured people's imaginations uh, quite as the book of Revelation has. From frightening depictions of a white horse and its rider administering divine wrath upon the nations of the earth, to the image of a multi-headed dragon who persecutes the church, to an evil beast who wages war upon the saints, to the seductress who dwells in the great city of man and who has prostituted herself with the merchants of the world, to John's description of Jesus in his glory, the book of Revelation stirs us like no other book of the Bible. Some find these scenes frightening. Some find them confusing. Sadly, many avoid the book altogether. And far too many have seen this book as a springboard to wild speculation. And despite having such a dubious reputation, I actually think that Revelation is a comforting and pastoral book. And there is much here for the people of God, especially when you're in a time of uncertainty such as our own. And so what we're going to discover as we make our way through this wonderful book is that Revelation is much more uh, like one of the letters of the Apostle Paul than it seems at first. And what do you expect to find when you open one of the letters of the Apostle Paul? Well, you expect to find an account of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, what promises of salvation are yet to be fulfilled, and how we who believe in Jesus are supposed to live in the meantime. And all of that is found in Revelation as well. In fact, those are the great subjects of the book. Revelation is all theology, teaching about God and salvation and living the Christian life. And we misunderstand the book entirely if we take it to be a secret code an esoteric forecast of future events, able to be understood only by the few that are capable of breaking the code and unlocking its secrets. To be sure, Revelation contains a forecast of great events at the end of time, but in a very general form. That is, it prophesies the second coming of Christ and the last judgment and heaven and hell, very much as Jesus did and as Paul did and as Peter did. But it uses a different form of words. It describes the events in a different style. But the message is the same. Now the primary key for interpreting all the symbols in Revelation is the Old Testament. There's very few symbols, there's very few things in Revelation at all that don't appear somewhere else in the Bible. There are hundreds and hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is very much like the prophecies of Daniel 
Ezekiel and Zechariah. In fact, Rich is starting to teach on Ezekiel. And uh, so those of you that want to see that, the other class is on Revelation if you want to go deeper into this book. But uh, you're not going to get away from prophecy uh, no matter what. You're going to have to go teach one of the children's classes or something. The, uh, but in each of the adult class, you're going to get a lot of symbols. So, the, uh, Now, most of those who heard the book of Revelation when it was read in the churches, I think most of them were probably able to understand uh, it. They were able to connect the symbols and the images that John uses to all those Old Testament prophets and those Old Testament passages from which they're taken. But since we're 2,000 years removed from the original context, and we're not devout Jews steeped in the Torah and the prophets, we're going to have to do some work to keep that background in mind. And this means that to interpret the book correctly, we're going to have to look often to the Old Testament to find the meaning of the symbols used by John. And so as we try and interpret these symbols from the Old Testament, let's not make the mistake of seeing the conflict that they depict between good and evil as those, those were uh, two equal sides fighting for, uh, fighting for uh, supremacy. Not at all. Satan struggles against the kingdom of God throughout the book of Revelation as an already defeated foe. The final outcome is never in doubt. In fact, since Revelation was written after the first coming of Christ and the inauguration of the kingdom of God, we have to understand that John's visions here presuppose that Satan's head has already been crushed by Christ at Calvary and that Satan's final defeat is rendered certain by Christ's resurrection from the dead. So this isn't a picture of two equal sides fighting it out and, boy, we really hope our side wins. But make no mistake about it, the images of conflict, which are depicted throughout uh, the lens of these apocalyptic symbols and images are that of a real conflict in which the people of God will suffer greatly at the hands of the devil. Having been defeated by Christ's cross and empty tomb, Satan is portrayed as a wounded animal, certain to die, but utterly vicious and irrational in his anger before the end finally comes. Satan wages war against the saints, but he cannot defeat them. And when he kills them, they come to life and reign with Christ. Indeed, this is a conflict in which the final outcome is never, never, never in doubt. If you take nothing else from this series of sermons, take this with you. In the end, God wins decisively. Now, it's really hard to come to this book without bringing your own sort of style and method and, and beliefs and everything else you know about the Bible to it. And everybody does that. And we have to be careful because it's very easy to see this book through the lens of your preferred interpretation. And I'm just as susceptible to that as anyone else. And so I'm going to give you all that up front. There are uh, four major approaches to approaching the book of Revelation. 
the one with which you're probably most familiar is the futurist view. It holds that most of what is written here has yet to be fulfilled and will only be fulfilled immediately in the days just prior uh, to our Lord's return. And explains why people who hold this view, uh, probably most well-known, not most prominent, but most well-known would be Tim LaHaye, who wrote the Left Behind series, according to this view. And they spend much of their time and energy trying to tie the symbols in the book of Revelation to current events. And as many of you know, there are many uh, churches and ministries devote themselves to explaining every tragedy and every political crisis uh, directly from the pages of Revelation. And if you're expecting me to do the same thing, you are going to be very disappointed. I'm not going to identify the Antichrist. I'm not going to predict the date of our Lord's return. I'm not going to explain the roles of American Israel in biblical prophecy. Instead, I'm going to try to talk about what John talks about. Jesus Christ's certain victory over all of his enemies. And hence the title for this series is The King's Triumphant Return. Another view, which is gaining acceptance in our uh, world, um, and some among Reformed Christians, is called preterism. And preterism holds that Revelation was written earlier, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and that much of what we find in Revelation was fulfilled when the Romans sacked and destroyed Jerusalem at that time. They destroyed the temple and they dispersed the surviving Jews throughout the Mediterranean world. I think preterists make the opposite error as do the futurists. Instead of treating this book as it deals with future events, they deal with it as largely past events. It's largely a historical book. And everything written here has already taken place. Now, we don't accept that view anywhere in the PCA. We do accept those that have the exception of Christ's second coming and last uh, uh, judgment and uh, new heavens and new earth, a view that's called partial preterism. And uh, people take that view. Ken Gentry is probably the father of that movement, but R.C. Sproul takes that, and you're always careful when you take on a theologian of that uh, rank. There's a couple other guys named Crenshaw and Coffeen that hold to this. So <laughs> this is probably just another example of a fool rushing in, you know, where angels fear to tread, uh, taking on both the assistants and R.C. and I'm not going to tell R.C. Um, but uh, I think I, uh, you know, have to interpret this the way that I see it. So the, uh, I think this view is problematic because in many ways it reduces Revelation to a historical record and it robs the book, I think, of its apocalyptic character and eliminates really John's stress on Christ's final victory when he returns in judgment to raise the dead and make all things new in the last day. But it's certainly a view that is acceptable uh, within the PCA. Full preterism is not because it basically says that Jesus has already come back and he's not coming again. And uh, so we would not accept that. Third view, uh, widely held uh, in history, is, is uh, historicism. Uh, virtually nobody holds this view today. I don't say, you know, 
there's probably somebody somewhere, but they're being real quiet about it. Um, but it views the book of Revelation as a historical map um, that goes all the way back from the age of the apostles up through the time of the Reformation. And uh, the, this view usually identifies uh, all the evil, uh, you know, the, the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 18 uh, with uh, the papacy and the Roman church. However, it doesn't fit very well with the nature of apocalyptic literature, which depicts not specific events, but general patterns of reoccurring conflict between Christ and Satan, which culminates in a final end times battle. So very few people hold that view. The fourth view is called idealism. And uh, I'll be presenting a modified form of that. I would uh, guess that the vast majority of folks in the PCA uh, hold to this. I don't know what the percentage would be, but it'd be pretty high. And uh, most Reformed people going back probably three, four hundred years would hold to this. Um, virtually no one outside of the Reformed uh, worldview holds to this. Um, this view emphasizes the apocalyptic nature of this book and understands the various visions throughout Revelation as depictions of the struggle which takes place during the entire period of time between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Each vision is describing the same period of time, but from a different perspective or vantage point. Each vision with a different theme or emphasis. One scholar puts it, it's like looking at the same scene through a different camera angle. And so you get that idea of a, a movie or a play, a drama, where you get different acts, where you see same thing being acted out, but a different way, a different vantage point. The, uh, this means that we don't see Revelation as depicting strictly future events or strictly past events. But we see it as encompassing all of that, past, present, and future, that this book applies in every age and every time, both before us, now, and after us. Nor does it exhaustively map out the history of the church age, but we see the visions and symbols as pictures of this ongoing struggle between Christ and Satan and his agents, the beast and the dragon, a struggle which Christ inevitably wins on behalf of his people. I believe this is the way that apocalyptic literature works. In other words, the book of Revelation is to be understood as the unveiling or revealing of Jesus Christ. It's not merely Jesus' revelation, the revelation that belongs to Jesus, but this book should primarily be understood as a revelation of or about Jesus. It's God's revelation about Jesus to us. And the knowledge and understanding of this may keep us, uh, hopefully, from unhealthy preoccupations with how history will unfold in the future or wild fictional speculations of what when the return of Christ will be. I was told by a wise pastor one time that the important idea to keep in mind in preaching is this. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So in our study of Revelation, by keeping the main thing the main thing, that is the focus upon God's revelation of Jesus, 
then our primary concern in understanding the book of Revelation is on the present work of Jesus Christ right now for his people and the encouraging hope and grace and strength that this revelation brings to us today in the midst of our struggles in this world. So about half this sermon was background. We're halfway. So what is this book about? And I haven't gotten into a whole bunch of stuff yet. So, uh, like I said, I'm going to take several weeks to cover all of the background and to get into some of the other issues. But let's start with our text, Revelation verse 1. And we're going to learn about this book's essential nature. It's essential nature. It starts off by saying the revelation of Jesus Christ. John, in fact, tells us at the outset what sort of book that he has written. In the opening verses, he tells us that what he's writing was a revelation. Now, in Greek, the word revelation is apocalypsis. And we get the word apocalypse from it. And, uh, you know, it's the first word of the book. And you hear this referred to, the book of Revelation is often referred to as the apocalypse. And that comes from the King James Version, which the title in the King James would be the apocalypse of St. John the Divine. Divine, in that uh, age, simply meant theologian. didn't mean that John was divine. It meant he was smart. Um, and uh, so we've taken that, but we've taken all of this stuff in the book, and apocalypse now come, has come to meant, you know, a catastrophic event. And so if somebody says that, you know, we're facing an apocalypse, you know, it's like the end of the world as you know it. That's not what the word means uh, in Greek or actually its formal meaning in English. This word appears 18 times in the New Testament. And when it's used of a person, it always comes with the meaning to make visible or to become visible. One of its first, first uses in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 2 from Simeon. If you remember when Jesus was a baby, his parents brought him to the temple and Simeon uh, came out. He was an old guy and he came out and he blessed him and, and held him up and he said, he praised God for this infant Jesus and he described him as in Luke 2, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And he uses the same word. Also, in, in Greek, there's no definite article, the. In English, it starts, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But in Greek, it's just revelation of Jesus Christ. Hence, the title of the book comes from the first word. And by revelation, he means in this book, God is disclosing to us what we wouldn't otherwise know and what we wouldn't be able to discover. So those two words, revelation and apocalypse, are really important words for understanding this book. Most people are confused by the book of Revelation. They view it as some sort of bizarre mystery. But that's not the case. Nothing could be further from the truth. Far from hiding the truth, the book of Revelation is designed to reveal the truth. This is the last chapter in God's story of redemption. And it tells how it all ends. It's designed to reveal it. 
We also use the word apocalypse to describe a certain form of writing. Prophetic writing, as far as we know, originated with some of the Old Testament prophets, continued to be employed up to the time of John in the book of Revelation. And apocalyptic writing is marked by reports of visions, uh, the transportation of the writer to heaven in his visions, uh, the giving of the revelation uh, to the prophet by angelic beings, and highly symbolic representations of the truth being revealed. And we find instances of this in lots of different places in the Bible, primarily in Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Daniel. Those would probably be the big three, but it's in lots of other places too. And what apocalyptic writing intends to provide is a transcendent perspective on the world and on life in our world. The writer is taken out of the world to learn the secrets of God's purposes as they're known in heaven and to see the world from a heavenly perspective. This is what was given to Daniel when he was in Babylon. He was given to see how the world looked from heaven and what God was really doing in the world. And of course, that's a very different perspective than the Babylonians had or even the Jews in exile in Babylon uh, had. It's the same way here. It's a very different perspective. I said earlier, an alternate reality. We're being given a perspective of what life looks like from heaven. And so in apocalyptic literature, the symbols are never meant to be taken literally. It's a mistake that many interpreters of this book make. Instead, they're to be interpreted through the lens of the Old Testament and John's own age, the, the latter uh, part of the first century, and the historical situation that John was in, which is the increasing persecution of the church, primarily by the Roman Empire. So Revelation is... Uh, it's an unveiling, it's a revealing, but it's not just an unveiling for unveiling's sake. It's an unveiling of someone, and that's its central theme. We see it's an unveiling of Jesus. The opening words summarize the whole book, as well as identify what's to come. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that can be taken two ways. It could be... A, uh, it reveals Jesus as the main character or that Jesus is the source of all that's about to be revealed to John through the angel. In a sense, they're both uh, could be true. The revelation itself is from Jesus Christ as well as being about Jesus Christ. And we're going to find that the book of Revelation is one of the most Christ-centered books in the whole Bible. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. And as we begin our study in the book of Revelation, our prayer should be, Lord, let us see Christ revealed. I think that's what we should be praying. Lord, let us see Jesus in this book. Because the, the book clearly identifies itself as an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. And so I pray as we study it together, we'll see Jesus more clearly than ever before. It seems pretty clear that John's intention in writing Revelation that his readers would grow in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my prayer is that that would happen for us as well, 
that as we go through Revelation, we would grow in our commitment to Jesus. Dr. W.A. Criswell, longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, which was probably a big, huge megachurch before we had megachurches. Uh, he gave the following explanation as to why Christ must yet be revealed in glory. He wrote this, and I'm just going to read it. I thought this was just really good. He says, The first time our Lord came into this world, he came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered with his manhood. His Godhead was hidden by his humanity. Just once in a while did his deity shine through as on the Mount of Transfiguration or in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder, the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was veiled. Those attributes were covered over in flesh, in humanity. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. And the last time that this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame and misery and anguish upon the cross. He did later appear to a few of his believing disciples, but the last time the unbelieving world saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a criminal, crucified on a Roman cross. That was part of the plan of God, a part of the immeasurable grace and love of the Lord. The Bible tells us by his stripes we are healed. But is that all the world is ever going to see of our Savior? Dying in shame on a cross? No. This book makes it clear that it is also part of the plan of God that someday the unbelieving, godless world shall see the Son of God in His full character, in glory, in majesty, in full-orbed wonder and marvel of His Godhead. And everyone will look upon Him as He really is. And they shall see him holding up in his hands the title deed to the universe. Tells us he holds the seven stars. And we have that on one of our new banners here. See, if I'm reading the banners right, that's uh, Revelation 1 through 3 over there and 4 and 5 over there. Did I get that right or close? So, uh, thanks to Louise and, and those who helped her for our new banners. But we'll see him holding in his hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us and the universe around us and the universe beneath us, holding the world and its destiny in his pierced, loving hands. And the book of Revelation reveals the majesty and the glory of Lord Jesus Christ. It does it in song and in poetry and in symbolism and in prophecy. And in it, the heavens are opened. And all of its readers get a vision of the risen, glorified Son of God. So not only does this verse give us the nature and theme of the book, but it prevent, presents us with its divine source. It says, which God gave him. The source of this book is God. As a reward for his perfect, humble, faithful, holy service, the Father promised to exalt the Son. Apostle Paul explained that in Philippians 2. He said, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Christ's exaltation promised in these verses is described in detail in the book of Revelation. It contains the full disclosure of the glory that will be Christ at his return, his ultimate reward from the Father for his faithfulness during his humiliation in his earthly life. But God gave him this revelation to do something with it, to give it to someone else, and so we see its human audience. It says, to show to his servants, to further exalt and glorify his son, the Father has graciously granted a special group of people the privilege of understanding the truth found in this book. He describes these people as Christ's servants. The Greek word for servants is doulos. It literally means slaves. And the doulos was a special type of slave. He was one who served out of love and devotion to the master. And so he's talking about believers. He's talking about the members of those seven churches that he's writing to and the members of the church today that his words are still written for. This book is written to show us. We remember last spring we worked our way through the book of Daniel. We studied Israel's captivity and exile. And it's easy to think, you know, that's interesting, but you know, how does that impact my life? But when John uses symbols throughout the book of Revelation, which he draws directly from the book of Daniel, he then applies them to Christ's church. And as members of that church, we are the people who are wandering in exile. Like the people in the book of Exodus. You know, who are wandering through the wilderness, sustained by the living bread from heaven, fully dependent on the living water to quench our thirst, always living under the constant threat of attack from God's enemies. But we have the certain knowledge that God will fulfill all his promises made to his people. Nothing that Satan can do will ever stay God's hand. And as we'll see, the symbols and images in Revelation describe a conflict in which God calls us to participate as combatants. And we must attempt to understand them correctly, lifting the veil of mystery that shrouds this book. But what does Jesus want to show us? When it comes to the last book of the Bible, one of the things he wants us to understand is its timeless urgency. He says, this revelation of Jesus Christ concerns the things that must soon take place. This assertion creates a serious problem for futurists, since it means that what John's about to reveal will concern the church, the church that he was writing to. It's not about something that will happen a long, long time from now. These are the things that must soon take place. Not just events located at the end of the age, but the entire church age. So the book of Revelation is reinforced by several other important passages in the New Testament. In his uh, sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter declares the last days are at hand. That was just 50 days after Christ's resurrection. The author of Hebrews states, the coming of Christ means that Christians in the first century we're already living in the last days. And that means the entire period of time between the first and second coming of Christ, this present evil age, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Galatians, are the last days. Therefore, the argument we hear that the last days are limited to a very small period of time immediately before the second coming of Christ, I would think is unfounded when you look at the teaching of the whole New Testament. 
Back when Jesus Christ took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, human history entered its final phase. And while the duration of that period of time is never revealed, it's certain that the last days began with the first coming of Christ and will end at his second coming. Now, throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus warned us not to become preoccupied with the date of his return. Instead, we're to keep watch and anticipate his coming again. And therefore, what John's about to reveal are things which will soon take place, things which concern the final age of human history, an age which ends when Jesus returns in great glory to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. The second thing I want to suggest by way of application is John sees this message as urgent. The end of verse 3 says, because the time is near. The pace quickens throughout the book. Things happen fast. Everything has an urgency about it. For John, the gospel has an urgency about it. It's not something he's going to get around to later. He's not waiting till he gets until uh, he retires to get serious about it. He's not putting it off to the end of the summer when the other projects are out of the way. He's not waiting until he has more money or he bought the house or made the last payment on the car. He wants us to, to remind us that every one of us is a heartbeat away from all the events in this book, from all the events of the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets. And if we die tonight we are still going to be present at the end of the story. It's that near to us. Every day brings it closer. And it's critical material. It deserves our urgent attention. And therefore, we should note briefly, it's supernatural messenger. He says he made it known by sending his angel. The book of Revelation is unique in the New Testament because it's the only book sent and communicated to its human author by an angel. Jesus reaffirmed the truth taught here at the end of the book. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. The visions are mediated through an angel. Jesus made it known to John through an angel, most likely the same angel he mentions at the end of the book. And he's so struck when John sees this angel by the majesty of the angel that he falsely starts to worship the angel and is immediately rebuked by the angel. Not only are angels involved in transmitting the book of Revelation, but they play a prominent role in all the scenes as they unfold. The ministry of angels is important in Revelation. They appear in every chapter except for 4 and 13. And the words angel or angels are used 71 times in this book, more than any other book in the Bible. In fact, one out of every four uses of the word angel in the entire Bible occurs in Revelation. So it's an important source of information on the ministry of angels. But the angel doesn't give the words directly to us, but rather he gives the words directly to its human author, John. It says, to his servant, John. According to the best biblical and historical evidence, the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John, the author of a gospel of John and three epistles. It was written during his captivity, on the island of Patmos. Most likely, not everyone agrees, but most scholars say sometime in the mid-90s of the first century. So for those of you that keep in track, I'm a later date person. 
Um, but I think most of the scholarship would hold to a, a mid-90s date. We know a little bit about the Apostle John. We've spent some time with the Apostle John. Uh, two years, if I remember, in uh, his book and in his epistles. And um, John traveled the road of faith longer than any of the original followers of Jesus. And because we've all undertaken that same adventure, it's gratifying to realize what the Lord did for him on his journey. John met Jesus at a time, if you remember, he was a follower of John the Baptist. And following the experience of Jesus in the wilderness, John the Baptist was the one who declared to John and Andrew uh, and John 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John and the others began to follow Jesus. They may be perhaps more out of curiosity than anything else at the beginning. And Jesus had just spent 40 days fasting, probably looked bad, you know, all emaciated and stuff. He didn't have any followers. He wasn't a great prophet. However, John followed him. And in time, he became devoted to him. The Bible tells us that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. He was not just an interested companion, but he's a, a disciple. He's convinced this man had the words of life. And he saw him transfigured on a mountaintop, and he witnessed his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory. The interested follower became a committed disciple, and finally an apostle, a representative of the Lord. This is the John who left us his gospels, his letters, and the book of Revelation. And now nearing the end of his life on the island of Patmos, he's allowed to see a vision of Christ that's more remarkable than anything he experienced with Jesus on earth. He sees him as the Lord in heaven taken to heaven itself, a lamb standing as if slain. He sees him astride a white horse, the magnificent one who will end history and destroy wickedness. And what began with a curiosity ends with a recognition that the one he had undertaken to follow is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I realize we're going long, but there's a lot. I appreciate your patience. The longer I pastor, the more I've come to realize the people of God, the people of this church are often spiritually hungry and hurting, and that all of us, self-included, have a pronounced need for real substantive hope. We've also come to realize that our generation is by and large too ill-informed and lacking in our knowledge of the Bible to understand the Christian life from God's perspective. This is where God's gift of hope comes in. You know, we use hope and sort of we toss it around in a vague uh, sense of well-being, you know, like I hope it doesn't rain today. But the Bible never refers to hope that way. Biblically, hope specifically refers to the last days. And when believers have hope, the incomparable wonders of what's ahead for God's people are brought to bear on our most difficult circumstances. And that's why the second coming of Christ is referred to as our blessed hope in Titus 2, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that gives us the confidence to say with the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Peter says the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his grace mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And I think we'll discover that we'll receive more help in enduring our everyday problems from studying Revelation than from any other book in the Bible. Not only that, we'll receive more guidance on how to live the Christian life from this book, and we'll receive more guidance on how to be the church from this book. And we'll discover this is an everyday book for everyday life. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on this book entitled Reverse Thunder, says, The intent of Revelation is not to inform us about God, but to involve us in God. I really like that. The first thing that will help us to be involved in God is to come to a deeper understanding of his son Jesus. The unveiling, the revelation uh, from God to Jesus and then to the angel and then to John and then to the seven churches at the end of the first century is of equal importance to us living out our lives at the beginning of the 21st century. We need to review our image of Jesus. He's no longer the baby in the manger. He's no longer the carpenter from Nazareth. He's no longer the wounded prophet in Jerusalem, but now he is the resurrected, ascended, glorified, sovereign son of God. He stands as the central figure in the universe, and all men and women who name him as Lord must bow their hearts and acknowledge him as the only truth, the only source of life, the only way. He is the only true prophet and the only high priest who can intercede before us uh, with the Father. He is the final righteous judge of all who reject him. And finally, our fully glorified Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is our chief shepherd who has the right and the power to walk among us and evaluate our lives so that we can continue to be used as a lampstand to hold him up as the light of the world. And this process of evaluation will continue until he comes again as the bridegroom to take his church, the bride, to himself in all her glory. As we hear John's words in the book of Revelation throughout this series, let us respond to the Savior who's revealed to us, taking every word to heart. For God promises us a great blessing if we do that. In this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have the sure and certain testimony of that one who gave himself for us, who conquered sin and death in the grave so that we may live victoriously, regardless of our circumstances. That same Jesus, whose testimony is given in this vision, will indeed bless all those who hear these words and take them to heart. So do that. Do that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close.